Good morning and welcome to the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela. And um, today we are looking at um, women in healthcare and our voice, our power, what can we do? Um, and so for the first half of the show today, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Cleopatra Pesu-Kamperveen and Paris Malouf, who will share uh, some of the work that they're doing in ensuring that healthcare is um, equitable and um, a positive experience for women. Last month, we hosted a show discussing women in healthcare. And as our guests delved into their own personal stories and experiences in healthcare, we quickly concluded that this was an issue that we would really need to revisit and would benefit from being further expounded on. So today we'll be highlighting the experiences of women who've encountered the medical system, the, the doctor's perspective, and explore how to minimize disparities while exploring the outcome of medical trauma. As we know, the rates of Black women being um, you know, treated poorly, not paid attention to, um, and, and most importantly, losing their lives, um, especially after experiencing pregnancy and childbirth, is um, the highest in this country. And so we have got to do something to address this. So I'm going to introduce our uh, first guest. And um, I'm really excited to have her. I've, I've been following her for quite some time. And uh, so it's been quite an honor to have her here on the show. Uh, her name is Dr. Cleopatra, and she is the Fertility Specialist and Executive Director of the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. Um, she is a scientist and university professor who pioneered the field of fertility, um, of fertility biohacking and creating super babies. Cannot wait to hear more about this. To date, Dr. Cleopatra has scientifically studied tens of thousands of women and families and has helped women in 19 countries and six continents have their super babies. Dr. Cleopatra is the recipient of the 2020 Most Courageous Award from the Mindshare Collaborative for Changing the Space of Fertility. She's the author of a forthcoming book detailing the best kept fertility secret, the Primester Protocol. The Fertility and Pregnancy Institute supports women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s to reverse re reproductive aging, get pregnant quickly and easily, reduce mis miscarriage risk, and finally have the super baby they have been dreaming of. Welcome, Dr. Cleopatra. Hello. I, I think you're muted. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> <laughs> so good to see you. I'm so glad to have you here. And uh, there's just so much that I I want to learn about because you know some of this 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 work that you've pioneered. Um, you know who better to talk about it than you? So, <laughs> yeah. so thank you. And the part that I didn't include in your bio is that you and your husband have three super babies, um, and and they were all conceived in March. Um, <laughs> all born in March. <laughs> All, uh, born in March, born in March. <laughs> we want to do the math when they're conceived, but yeah, <laughs> born in March, <laughs> um, 35th, 37th, and 40th birthdays, and all of which um, birthdays that normally, you know, you, you get pregnant and you go to the doctor and they say, oh, you're a, you're a geriatric pregnancy. It, yeah. And I can only imagine what that does to a woman's mind when they hear that. Yes, totally. Yeah. We know all about it at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. And it's not just when once you're pregnant that you hear that, but also mm -hmm. when you're starting to think about getting pregnant and all, how all of those those stereotypes 
affect what you believe is possible for your body and for yourself. Absolutely. And, and just the, I would imagine the level of stress and pressure and sense of self that you, one must experience um, when that is the way that their pregnancy is, is being presented to them or the possible yes. pregnancy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about this, this idea. You pioneered the field of fertility biohacking and creating super babies. Now I, I can guess what that might mean, but I would love to hear your perspective on that. I think that when you hear fertility biohacking and creating super babies, you might be under the impression that we are creating designer babies that were using medical intervention. But at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute, we teach women and couples and families about the best kept fertility secret. And the best part of this fertility secret, the best kept fertility secret, is that it's not something that you have to rely on anyone else or anything else for. So it's something you have complete control over. And it's what's called the primester. And the primester is the period of time leading up to conception. Usually it's 120 days or more. And it's during this period of time that you have the power to literally change the quality of the genes that you pass down to your babies and grandbabies. We know that epigenetic inheritance, which is what we are focused on in the trimester, creating positive epigenetic change so that we get to give our babies the very best epigenetic foundation humanly possible. We know all about genes, but not many people know about the epigenome. So we know that this epigenetic inheritance that we're working on cultivating in the best way possible passes uh, crosses at least two generations. So when you get to have your super baby, it's because you took advantage of this magical and powerful window of opportunity that is the primester. And you did all of the work that is within your control to create the very best epigenome possible to pass down to your babies and your grandbabies. And when you get to have your very best epigenome possible, that means that you've ignited your fertility. So if you're experiencing conditions of subfertility or fertility challenges, you can almost always overcome them using the trimester and the work that we do in the trimester. But you're also creating your super baby, which means the healthiest, happiest, brightest, most well-adjusted baby that you can possibly have given your genes and your epigenome and that of the person, the other person who's providing DNA for your baby. Wow. I, I find that so fascinating because I know that when we um, when we hear about um, you know trauma and, and the traumas we can pass on to our children, I think this is the first time I have heard a proactive approach to passing the opposite of trauma or passing you know, goodness on to the next generations, and and how powerful is that? I I absolutely love that. Wow! I am goosebumps. Shout it from the rooftop. I mean, we call that at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute intergenerational bliss. We 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 hear so much about intergenerational stress and and trauma, but we have the ability in a very deliberate way to intercept those processes and to the best of our ability, pass down the good stuff 
to our super babies. And that's what we want for every woman and and family in the world. That's our mission at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute. That's so powerful also because, and I know I keep saying powerful, it just just is. I have chills too. Um, But, you know, because the pregnancy process is, um, for many, it's it's stressful. And it's, it's, um, you know, I I know several people who have been going through it and have been struggling with it. And I, I want all of them to call you. I mean, how, what can they do from where they are, you know, to enhance their process if they don't have access to you? I know you're writing a book. Is there, is, is this something that will help women who, you know, maybe aren't, aren't within reach of your center? Yeah. So we work virtually. That's how we're able to work Mm. with women on six continents. So we can work with people wherever they are in the world. However, it's until the book comes out and that's the most accessible version of this work financially, it is out of reach for some people financially. We have several options in order to be able to accommodate people because our, our number one core value at the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute is deep impact access and inclusion. So we work really hard to ensure that we have options that can accommodate everybody. However, for for sure, there are some people for whom even our, our options don't work. So that's the whole point of the book that will be coming yeah. out, detailing the trimester protocol, which is the system that we teach people to use during that window of time, the trimester, to create this epigenetic change and foundation for overcoming fertility challenges, making sure that they get pregnant quickly and easily. They can reverse reproductive, reverse and slow reproductive aging. They reduce risk of miscarriage and chromosomal abnormality and other types of pregnancy complications and just maximize the odds that they get to have a healthy, happy pregnancy and they get to have their super baby. So using Mm -hmm. the trimester protocols, the way that we teach people to do this, but I can give you a few examples that are really helpful to get people into action right away. So one of the first things that I want people to understand is that their fertility is not a thing located in their ovaries or their uterus or even in their hormones. Their fertility is a complex network. You can think of the a cell phone network or you can think of the neural network in the brain. And, it, and fertility is the same way. And just like the brain, fertility has plasticity. Wow. Wow. Well, we're, we're going to go to a break. Um, when we come back, I also want to bring in Nurse Barry into this conversation um, because she's also doing great work in this area. So uh, I am ready for a robust conversation. Everybody stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Lighting Center. I am joined by and um, also, um, we have um, Paris Malouf, who is also joining us today. I'm going to go ahead and introduce Paris. Um, Paris Malouf Berry is a certified nurse midwife and board certified lactation consultant and the president elect of the California Nurse Midwives Association. She's been caring for women and families for 15 years. Um, Paris believes that every woman deserves gentle, respectful, evidence-based care and works tirelessly to shape the culture, policies, and paradigms that continue, that determine the care that we um, deliver and receive. 
In addition to clinical practice and advocacy, she has spent much of her career providing education and support to new and expectant families as a childbirth educator, writer, associate editor um, of Healthy Mom and Baby magazine. Uh, welcome, Paris. Hey, Dr. Pam. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's so great to have you. And um, it's just such an important topic. I, I saw the intersection of the work that both you and, and Dr. Cleopatra have been doing and just thought, I've got to get these two women together on this show <laughs> to, um, to to have this conversation. And, and I'll just speak more specifically about what, um, I guess, compelled me to, to cover this topic. Um, some of the work that I am doing myself is is really looking at some of the biases and some of the care and actually looking from a coaching lens in, in terms of how uh, medical professionals are working with Black women in particular um, before, during, and after pregnancy. And so when I see people who are doing this work, I kind of clamp on. So I've been clamped on to both of you on social media, unbeknownst to both of you. So, <laughs> um, But one of the things that I wanted to highlight is a, a post that Dr. Cleopatra um, put up a few, um, uh, maybe it was a month or two ago now. Um, and you shared that your mother, um, you know, did not make it through the, the childbirth process with you and your twin sister. Um, and you posted an article that, that gave, you know, some really disturbing information and statistics about um, how Black women are perceived in their um, just in general, you know, that, you know, and here's some just some some tidbits from that um, post um, that the beliefs are that blacks are more fertile than whites, which to me would imply that their infertility or struggles with fertility would not be taken quite as seriously. Um, blacks have less sensitive nerve endings than whites. I've heard this many times and it's so disturbing. Um, despite rampant stereotypes of hyper fertile black women and Latinas, Scientific data show that Blacks are not um, more fertile than white. Um, and in fact, Black women are more likely to experience fertility challenges, less likely to receive fertility treatment, and less likely to be successful in fertility treatment when they do receive it. Um, and it means that doctors treat Blacks as if they can't feel pain. Um, so there's there's a lot there. And, um, uh, you know, and I know that Paris, you were also, and, and as, as we were getting on the show, I thought, oh, we needed to show a clip of you in documentary, but, but Paris was uh, featured in a documentary in which she was addressing some of this, this, um, these concerns as well. Um, but I want to give um, just quickly um, Dr. Cleopatra a moment to just to, to respond to this particular post, but I also want to hear from um, Paris um, about some of the work that you're doing as well. So let me start with um, Dr. Cleopatra with regards to this post. Thank you so much. I think it's really, really important that we remember that that Black women and and all women of color and are are as human as as white women are. And for some reason, historically and and even today, that has been really hard for for healthcare providers and physicians to be able to fully internalize. And I. I find it so hard to believe that this is possible. And yet I'm fairly certain that this is not intentional. I have scientifically studied physicians. I have interviewed physicians. I have created training 
with Anthem Health Insurance for physicians on the reduction of healthcare stereotype threat and the creation of stereotype safe healthcare environments for reproductive health and broader health. And I believe that most physicians are very well-meaning and well-intended, in fact, that they come into their profession because they want to be of service. They want to help people. And somehow these stereotypes that are so ingrained in our society are there lurking and they are operating often at an unconscious level, but they have very, very real consequences for human beings and for families and for generations of families if we if we don't find a way to change it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I am so glad that there are, there are people who are bringing this to the forefront. Um, I remember uh, Kamala Harris passed something, um, you know, some legislation, um, I don't know, maybe a year ago, but as this was bubbling up to the surface, um, to do, to pass, um, to do more research is, is really what she, you know, to fund initiatives that were going to look more deeply into this. Um, Paris, um Tell us a little bit about you know the work that you're doing, um, it, you know especially as it referred um, is it this is related to this documentary that you did. That's what reeled me in. Um, yeah. I know that you were um, you know doing a lot of work with that. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I'm a, a nurse midwife and um, also a lactation consultant, and so the bulk of my work is focused on caring for, supporting. Um, and following the lead of women and birthing people. Um, and I live in California, which is where I work. And most of the, the policy work that we've done surrounding um, racial justice and healthcare disparities has really not been led by me. Um, I have been fortunate in that um, I've met and had the opportunity to work with and to follow the leadership of Black women, Black-led organizations. I'm president-elect. I will be taking over as president in like six days or something of the California Nurse Midwives Association. And we've been working hard to pass legislation. But I think it's really important to acknowledge um, Black women for wellness here in California um, have been... I think the, the fact is that black women and black leadership know what they need. They know what the problems are. They have the lived experiences. And so as a leader in midwifery care and nursing care in California, um, our job has to be to listen and then to follow their leadership. So we were really successful this year. We are currently celebrating the passage of Senate Bill 1237, which is the Justice and Equity in Maternity Care Act which will expand access to midwifery care um, to uh, especially birthing people in rural communities. We've got nine of the counties in California that have no OB, um, no obstetrician. Um, and this will allow midwives to go to those counties and provide care. Um, and also in more um, urban and dense areas where um, women sometimes feel like they are a number. Um, and what we are hearing from, um, our, our black leadership is that 
what they want is to be humanized, which yeah. sounds so, so silly. They, um, cause it's a basic human right to be treated as a human in birth and yeah. in pregnancy. Um, but while black women are dying at three to four times the rate of white women in this country, the research, the data are impeccable, um, really clear that it's got nothing to do with um, zip code, with which neighborhood you live in, with who your doctor is or who your midwife is. It has nothing to do with your income, with your education, um, and so much to do with racism and whether that racism is in the form of explicit overt acts by your provider or implicit things like you know, assuming that, oh, you know, it's not really that bad and ignoring symptoms. Um, and then also the, the toxic, chronic, um, inflammatory effects of the lived experience of racism on a daily basis. In fact, there was a beautiful study a few years back that showed that black women who immigrated to this country um, had rates of maternal mortality um, comparable to those of white women, but their black daughters who were born here and raised here quickly demonstrated those tremendous racial disparities. Um, one of the pieces of legislation that we were successful in passing last year was Senate Bill 464, um, Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. And that, again, wow. was sponsored by um, Black Women for Wellness. We were a co-sponsor. Again, um, I think it's important for um, healthcare like 95-ish percent of midwives are white. I identify as midwife of color, but I'm Middle Eastern and, you know, I pass. So kind of like, I don't, I'm not subject to the same thing that, that black and brown women are. Um, so it's, wow. it's kind of, it's kind of a, whatever. But um, the um, SB 464 last year was a step. It's not a silver bullet, but it will mandate implicit bias training for all um, healthcare providers in, uh, in pregnancy and birth. Um, so that started this year in California, and we're looking forward to hoping that people will be more aware of these biases they have. Again, like you said, believing that, um, Dr. Cleopatra, believing that, that Black women don't feel as much pain or that their struggles aren't as real. Um, as virtuous white women's experiences, right? I say virtuous. I know. I, I have to air quotes in the, in the tone. <laughs> um, but yes, no, and so and we, we do need to go to break, but, you know, that brings to mind several questions that I, I had actually been to focus you. So think about this during the break, but, you know, um, I don't I don't necessarily enjoy spending too much time on um, the president, but what I will say is that he just recently um, came against bias um, training and, and training such as that. So I, I do want to throw that out there and, and look at you know ways of maneuvering through that. Um, but we're going to talk about that when we come back. So stay with us. Pamela, and um, today I am joined by Dr. And we are talking about um, racial disparities as well as the, what it takes to, to make pre, during, and post pregnancy. I'm sure there's a better way of saying that. Um, <laughs> it's to improve that process um, for women and um, really looking at what's happening with black women in particular. 
Um, before the break, um, Parrish shared that there was legislation being passed in California, um, which, by the way, you're both in California. I was born and raised in California, so that's that's my home, um, my original first home. And um, and I'm 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 encouraged by what I'm hearing in terms of legislation that's being passed. Um, my question, though, is um, you know just recently, a few weeks ago, um, there was a directive that came out of the White House to end racial sensitivity trainings that will address topics like white privilege, critical race theory. And um, just based on what you just said, Paris, um, very clear line and connection to this idea of white privilege. Um, the, you know, um, the implication that a lot of these structures are in place because of um, what critical race theory explains, um, which is basically that we are in an institutionally, um, our system is set up um, you know, in an institutionally racist way, and there's going to be, um, you know, results from that. We're going to experience this racism that happens in healthcare, that happens in education, that happens in um, the, the justice, the justice system, and so forth. I, I'm just wondering if there's ways in which you think a directive like this could impact the work. I know that he focused on government agencies. Um, how could this impact the work of medical professionals um, and training for medical professionals? Um, and, and what do we do to get around that? <laughs> this is a great example of white privilege. He's benefiting from the system as it is, right? I think we all know that. Um, and for clarification, the system is not broken. The system is functioning exactly as it was designed to function. So um, he's got a stake in the game. He's got like plenty of reason to, to not want it to change. And while some people, I think, are not racist, as if there was such a thing, right? Um, and, and like to pretend to be colorblind. And, and I say that, I, I probably sound way too sarcastic there. And I don't mean that. I should take walk that back a little bit. I think some people just are not as um, informed. They haven't come as far along on the process and don't really know what to do with the situation and feel maybe like they're not participating in the racism. Um, there are- Training is important. Right. But then there are some people like him probably who are very vested in maintaining the status quo. Um, and so it serves him. It serves him to maintain the white supremacist structure in this country. And people are dying regularly. Um, yeah. And you're in Georgia, right? Um, yeah, we've got some of the years. yes, some of the highest rates of maternal mortality, and some of the the most restrictive um, laws governing women's health care, um, specifically um, uh, termination care, as well as midwifery care. Access to midwives is really, really harshly restricted there, which means that um, you know it leads me to question how much do we value. Um, women's autonomy um, and choice and control over their own reproductive choices, even when it comes to things like having a baby, you know, not just termination. Um, right. So I think that there's probably some really telling reasons as to why he would make a statement like that. You know, what, what is he wanting to protect? Is he wanting to protect himself? Is he wanting to protect the system? Is he wanting to protect um, his friends, his colleagues who also benefit from the system. Um, I personally am optimistic, fiercely 
optimistic that he has little power to govern um, policies within individual states. So like in California, SB 464 was still passed, you know, and we are still rolling it out this year. Um, Yeah, I hope that it will have little, if any, impact um, here. But it's a big country. And, you know, words matter. It's it's a far-fetched, you know, and and, and I think that because of the work that many of us do, even whether it's directly related to privilege and critical race theory, or it is in practice, which is what I see a lot of, I mean, this this is, Dr. Um, Cleopatra, you do a combination, you do the practice, you do the research, um, you're, you're in both arenas. Um, uh, do, do policies like this impact the work that, that you and your team do? I want to- not a policy, but you know, to, yeah, go ahead. For a recommendation. I want to say first and foremost that we need leaders in every realm of life who make decisions and recommendations based on evidence and data and can yeah. put their own personal beliefs and desires aside for the sake of relying on evidence and data. And and what I think is so important about this recommendation is that it's clearly not based in evidence or data, because if it were, it, it, it couldn't exist. Because if you were looking at the evidence and data, what you would know is that the neurobiology of the human being is a racist and prejudiced one, that every single human being on the planet has prejudice. And it's because that's the way that our brain works. Our brain uses mental shortcuts called schema. And one of the schema or schemata that we all use every single day is to be more fearful and distant from dissimilar others. And you can think of dissimilar others in many ways, racial, ethnic, language, religious, a number of things. And it is natural and normal because the way that we evolved in the the world that our caveman and woman ancestors lived in was if you saw someone who looked different from you, that usually signaled danger. It signaled the threat of war. It signaled the threat of exposure to pathogens that you didn't have herd immunity to, kind of like what we're seeing with coronavirus. And we see that prejudice playing out in coronavirus as well, right? So I think it is very important to understand science and understand the data and the evidence. And what the data and the evidence say is that it is absolutely necessary for us to keep figuring out and deliberately learning how to counteract that natural human tendency toward bias. And if we don't actively counter that natural human tendency toward bias, then people like my mother and so many other families will, and mothers and, and children and so many other families will keep dying. There was a recent study that showed that black newborns are three times. I mean, I just get so choked up just even recounting this finding, but are three times more likely to die when cared for by white doctors than by Mm -hmm. black doctors. 
I don't believe that that's intentional, but that is a product of the prejudice brain that we all have. And we must, must stay committed to actively countering that natural impulse of our brain because we, we live in a civilized world. We need to behave that way. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that is so I mean, disturbing because, you know, as I talked about, is you know, what the mothers go through um, and, and you just touched on the, and the mothers, you know, losing their children, but the fact that the children are being lost um, due to this. This is, as a, this is, as a mother, okay. I would much rather die than lose my child. I'll tell you that much. Like, yeah. I, I mean, t- hands down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and to have to even have make that statement, you know what I mean? I mean, to even for that to be the choice that 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 many women, this is this is what we're seeing in our society that that it comes down to having to even say that, um, and that just really leads me to this this idea of trauma, um, and, and I love the work that you're doing, Dr. Cleopatra, because it it first of all it helps to <laughs> make the process less traumatic, if, if traumatic at all. Um, but then the women who come to you who have experienced the trauma of, um, you know, abuse from their medical professionals or the, the, the loss of, you know, just, just the struggle of getting pregnant or losing babies. You know, how does your work help to alleviate that trauma or to address that trauma um, that women experience? trying to have a baby. We we are taking care of and, and supporting women every day who have experienced fertility challenges and who have also experienced pregnancy loss. And, uh, and, and there's nothing that can ever take those experiences away from them. But we really focus on healing the central nervous system and igniting the fertility system so that they can overcome fertility challenges and be more likely to have a beautiful experience of getting pregnant and staying pregnant and and being pregnant and delivering their baby and and transitioning into motherhood. And it's, it's really important. We talk a lot about intergenerational stress and trauma. And I think that we think of that as a very abstract thing. And what most people don't know is that it's actually a very concrete thing, that there is a process called epigenetics, where through what we experience, how we live, what we think, what we consume, how we move or don't move, how we interact with nature and other beings, including our healthcare providers, that these experiences become imprinted in our biology and are embedded in our DNA and and leave marks on our genes. And that becomes our epigenome. And that epigenome to some degree is inherited by our babies and our grandbabies. So there was a, there was a study that showed that a a group of of mice male male mice were exposed to a cherry blossom scent and then the cherry blossom scent be, was paired with a shock and of mm. course they developed a fear of the cherry blossom scent because when they smelled it they expected to be shocked and what was so interesting was that their pups and their grand pups 
had the fear of the cherry blossom scent without ever having experienced the shock. That lives inside of us. And so where, where that's living inside of us is in our central nervous system. And we are working with women and couples and families every day to at, at different at the five levels of their fertility pyramid, as we call it, to to work on the body stress response to soothe the central nervous system. Because if someone is having fertility challenges or they're having difficulty getting or staying pregnant, then we almost always know that there's some place in their life where they don't feel safe because the brain will not allow the body to prioritize reproduction if the brain perceives that we are not safe or that there are not enough resources to ensure our survival and also to ensure the survival of the baby. Oh my gosh. See, this is why, this is why we had to do a part two of this show because there, it is so loaded. There is so much. Um, At the tail end of the last show, one of the, the, the women said that we are carrying the trauma of our grandmothers, of our mothers and, we have to find a way to stop it within ourselves. And so here you are talking about how to address that. I mean, it's just, um, you know, powerful, you know, and from the standpoint of Paris, the work that you do, you know, you're a lactation consultant, um, midwife. Did I say that right? You're mm-hmm. midwife? Yeah. yeah. And I, I know that you see, the manifestation of, of trauma as well and, and the experiences that they have. Yes. How is that dealt with and you know, where you are? Where you are? Um, one of the things that I specialize in truly actually is in perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So uh, a lot of the patients, a lot of the, the people that I care for, um, that's a huge focus of what we do. Um, and I mean, we're looking at their, their histories of trauma um, and then helping to identify um, their sources of resilience, um, their strengths, helping them to see those things. I think probably one of the most important things as a midwife that I do when I'm um, caring for people who've had trauma or who are dealing with mood and anxiety disorders is to simply hold space. Um, We need to feel seen. We need to feel believed. uh, We need to feel empathy. Um, and I think it goes a really long way. Um, that's not to say that I don't prescribe antidepressants. Um, but I think that that's secondary. I really do. I think that helping... I was talking with a woman yesterday, in fact, um, who we've been on a journey together for almost a year. And she's just, you know, coming to a, a wonderful state of recovery. Um, and she'll always have, you know, her the trauma that she experienced like with violence and witnessing violence and murder. And, um, and we were talking about that, but we were discussing um, integrating that story and how she felt like dismissed previously. She felt like people said, well, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not. I think that what so many of, of us are, are feeling is that when our experience, our lived experience is not seen, when it's shut down, when it is um, made to be insignificant, then we don't feel like we matter. But when somebody can can help you to, to believe yourself, 
to trust yourself, to trust your instincts, to know that what you experienced was real and to, to just hold that space and to, to share empathy. Um, I think that goes a tremendous way because when we can learn to trust ourselves, to trust our instincts, to believe that what we had was real, what we experienced was real, then we can move forward. And I was talking with another mom who was saying that she felt so bad because she like had all of this anxiety around people who were like wanting to take her baby out of her arms. And, and I was like, that's not anxiety. That's instinct. It is your job to protect your baby. And just because we may have been told or our grandmothers may have been told or whoever else was, it's okay to let that baby cry, put the baby down or what have you. That doesn't mean that it's right. And we need to to help women to recognize their inner wisdom, their innate wisdom yeah. and to to believe that their experiences were, were real and to believe their insight into their own experiences. Um, so... I'm just going to cut in really quickly because we, we have to go to the top of our hour. Um, and I know both of you are here for the first hour. I have one more question for both of you. If you're able to stay, wonderful. Um, but uh, we're going to go to uh, the second hour of the live exchange. I am Dr. Pamela. And uh, today I am joined by Dr. Sabine as well as Louis Harris. I'm inverting your name. Sarah's Malouf Berry, and um, and we are having a, a really compelling conversation um, about women and healthcare and the maternal process and all of that. And um, I really just re- uh, wanted to, to hold on to the two of you for just maybe five more minutes if you're able, um, and for a lo- as long as you want, if you're willing. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I've had some, some medical professionals in my world who... Um, you know, we've debated about this, and, I, and I, I'm sure that maybe some of you have had some people kind of push, out, push back against um, your perspectives on this as well, and the research on this. Um, and and what? And I'll just I won't name this this person at all, but every time I post about it, or I have you know, or I, I you know engage in dialogue about it, um, the, the the physician will say. And, and what's interesting is, and I'll just say, what's shocking is this is a black woman. Um, and we'll say, well, you don't know what I see. When I'm in my job, I see women who don't take care of themselves. I see women who they, you know, they they don't take this seriously. They don't show up for appointments. And so, yes, of course, the rate of Black women dying and, and experiencing hardship in pregnancy is going to be higher because they don't take their pregnancy seriously. Um, I, the research seems to to indicate otherwise, but I, I would just love to hear your responses. To, um, to that part of it, because maybe there is some level of, okay, there's, there's women who aren't taking care of themselves and so forth. What does that mean in the, in the grand scheme of this picture? And we're going to break. Okay, so we're going to break. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Pamela, and I am joined by Dr. Sia Katra and Terrence Berry. I guess <laughs> and um, I asked the question before the break: How do you respond to um, physicians and people who are in the field and who are saying Black women are dying because they're not taking care of themselves? Um, I'll let Dr. Cleopatra go first. The first thing I want to say in response to that is we all do the very best that we can with both the information and the resources that we have. 
And that being said, I also want to say that when you're looking for an answer, answer, the smartest thing to do is look to the data for the answer. And we have mountains of scientific data that show that this is not the case, that these are not things that, that individuals have control of that are leading to maternal death. In fact, the vast majority, up to 70% perhaps, of maternal mortality is preventable. And this is largely preventable from a healthcare standpoint, from responding appropriately to healthcare conditions, complications that come up. And so I absolutely believe that if we want to make the biggest difference in in reversing this or reducing this disparity and helping to ensure that all of our mothers and all of our babies get to live a long, healthy, happy life where they thrive, we need to focus on ensuring that everyone is receiving the same level of care. And I think that a lot of people have the misconception that maternal mortality and infant mortality are the result of poverty. But what people don't understand is that women, Black women and other women of of color with a college education of higher socioeconomic statuses are also dying. This is not a socioeconomic issue. And this is also not an issue of health behavior and what people are doing wrong. Yeah, that is, this is so important to, to point out. And um, um, Paris, did you have anything to add to that? What are, what are your pers- perspectives on this? You're muted. I'm muted. <laughs> okay, you're good. Am I unmuted? You're unmuted now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just to tag on to what you said, Dr. Cleopatra. Um, Yes, it's not a matter of socioeconomic status. In fact, what we see is that um, Black women who have graduate-level degrees are still more likely to die in pregnancy and childbirth than women who white women who have not finished high school. Um, so it's, it's not that matter. And then going back to what you brought up, Dr. Pamela, um, with regard to what this physician has said about... Um, it sounds to me like blaming the victim, um, saying that it was because black women aren't taking their pregnancy seriously, aren't taking care of their bodies, aren't taking care of themselves. Um, as Dr. Cleopatra said, that's not what the data shows us. Um, but secondly, I, I would really, um, I've, I've got two thoughts that come to mind. First of all, where does this come from? Where does this perception come from on her part. I wonder when when healthcare providers, especially um, healthcare providers of color, when they take this approach, if they're saying it out of a place of belief or if it's from a place of feeling kind of powerless and frustrated and like they have nothing else to do and they don't want to perceive themselves as, as failing, yeah. um, especially failing other um, people of color. The other thing that I would strongly recommend to all healthcare workers is to to do some research on trauma-informed care. Get yourself educated on how to develop that level of of practice because we sometimes make the mistake of assuming that people who are not compliant with our recommendations don't care. They don't value their health. They 
don't take us seriously. They're not respecting our authority. Um, when often they have their own story, it's not, you know, what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. Um, are you late for your appointments? Are you missing your appointments because you don't have transportation? Do you have issues with childcare? That's a huge issue right now during COVID where we're saying that people can't bring their children with them to visits. Uh, what if they don't have childcare, you know, or, um, are they, are they not eating the way you think they should be eating because they live in a food desert? You know, we've got, we've got very structural segregation, not only of housing and of schools, but also of access to food and grocery stores, um, produce. So, yeah. yeah. So before you go blaming the victim, you know, blaming these women who have higher rates of mortality, of hypertensive disorders, et cetera, and saying, well, it's because you're making bad choices. You know, she was raped. What was she wearing? How much did she have to drink first? Maybe we need to look at the whole system and say, well, how about if I ask her, you know, is, is there something that we can do to make it easier for you to get to your appointments? Are you, do you have issues with, with transportation or with childcare? Or what can we do to, to make it explore that with them? Give them the yeah. benefit of the doubt and just ask what's going on. Again, what, what I'm hearing from the people that I care for is that more than anything, they wanted to be treated, they want to be treated like a human person. They want mm-hmm. to be engaged in conversation. They crave, as all of us do, relationships with people who are going to be providing us with this level of very intimate care. Um, yeah. And that, that requires two-way discourse. Absolutely, yeah. Human beings. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get more plain and simple than that. Um, I, well, I want to thank you both for coming in. I want to give you an opportunity to just let people know how they can reach you um, or, or just about, you know, getting in contact with any of the work that you're doing. Um, and I'll start with Dr. Cleopatra. Thank you so much for having me and for hosting this really important conversation that that needs to be had. So I salute what you're doing. And if you would love to get in touch with the Fertility and Pregnancy Institute, then please visit us at fertilitypregnancy.org. Again, that's fertilitypregnancy.org. And we have an incredible resource there for you. It's called the Ultimate Fertility Checklist, and it teaches you things that you have never heard before about your fertility that you really want to know when you're in your trimester, that time leading up to pregnancy. Wow. Thank you so much for that. Thank um, you. I, 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 I just have to throw out there that I thought like once I hit my 40s, this is me getting personal with the world. <laughs> you know, I, I need to forget about getting pregnant because the risk is too high. Black women are dying. And so I just have to say, Dr. Cleopatra, if I do decide to get pregnant, I have no person in my life who would, you know, going to do that right now. But <laughs> but if I do decide to get pregnant, I'm going to reach out to you. <laughs> you know what? You don't have to wait until you have the person to start, to start primestering because that mm. sure that you are first of all sending out the right signal to the universe i firmly believe that but also that your your body and your fertility are ready for when that person comes because every day matters and the earlier in our lives we start primestering the longer we get to have and enjoy our fertility which is intimately tied to our longevity by the way well, I, I love it. I, I really appreciate that. My mom is listening in for her, like, what are you talking about more babies? <laughs> but, <laughs> I love it. 
Um, so thank you so much. And Paris, how can um, people get involved with what you're doing or connect with you if they'd like to? Yeah. Um, so the California Nurse Midwives Association is cnma.org. Um, and we're there's always opportunities to get involved, to write to legislators, um, to advocate, for sure. Um, and we are going to be working on some federal legislation. Oh, gosh, we're going to start working on that soon in the next couple of months. Um, the other thing I would urge listeners to do is to vote. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Vote. All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm sorry. Okay, that's number one. That's number one. Yes. Yes. Vote. Uh, Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. I hope that I can have you both back, especially after your book comes out, Dr. Cleopatra, because I I want to delve into that one. (laughs) I will be back. All right. Well, thank you both, and I um. I'm going to be here still, everybody who's you know, listening. We're going to continue this conversation. But thank you so much, Paris and Dr. Cleopatra. Um, thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. Thank, thank you, Dr. Pamela. Great to meet you, Paris. Great to meet you, Dr. Cleopatra. I'm going to find you because we're in the same state. I know. I thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. Bye-bye. So this is The Verdict with... Um, Brianna Taylor's death, and as you heard there, um, they were barred from being able to press charges in her death because of a fire that was returned to the police officers who entered their apartment unannounced. And um, now what the charges did consist of is the, the endangerment to the neighbors of Brianna Taylor because bullets did go through the walls of the apartment of Brianna Taylor, thereby impacting the safety of her neighbor. Um, this created an outrage and we have had um, protests um, all night in numerous cities um, and particularly in Louisville where two police officers were shot and um, they are, you know, set to recover. And, you know, what's interesting is that um, a lot of what's going around and a lot of what's being said about this is that, um, you know, what was more important in this case was to protect Brianna Taylor's neighbors who, um, whose lives were at risk rather than to bring justice to the actual death of Brianna Taylor in a, in a case that has many holes in it, in a case that has um, many um, discrepancies. Um, but as was stated there, because of the fact that the fire was returned to police officers that they were also shot at, that they were justified in killing um, innocent Brianna Taylor. So I, you know, I am pretty sure this is not the end. Um, there have been, you know, protesters have vowed to, um, we are not, this isn't it. We're not done with this. We will not stop. We will not remain quiet on this. Um, and so we will see a continuation of, um, of outrage in this case. So, you know, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see what happens here. And just to give you an overview of, of exactly um, um, what some of the details of this case are, uh, Brianna Taylor is 26 years old. She's a black emergency room technician and an aspiring nurse. And she is described by her relatives as a hardworking, goal-oriented young woman who put an emphasis on family. Um, and the, the outrage 
and the heart rate that's boiled over protests um, is, you know, it, it, it's across the country. Um, we see these protests that are, um, you know, happening in numerous cities and more than six months, this happened six months ago, um, the Louisville police officers broke down the door of apartment and they were executing a warrant. And, um, and this is, as you just heard, uh, the grand jury decided to indict only one of the three police officers involved on first degree wanton endangerment charges. The charge applies to the risk put on her neighbors, but does not aim to hold the officer responsible for her death. So these protests have happened from Louisville to LA to Atlanta. Um, and, you know, um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where we go with this. You know, what, will this case go higher? Um, you know, what will be done to um, bring justice to this particular case? Because they're, um, it is being made very clear that they're not letting up on this. We're you know, going to continue to speak out on this. So it's kind of in the same vein, because you know what happens when uh, a case needs to go beyond the state, goes to the Supreme Court. Um, we have a, um, we have Supreme Court Justice um, Bader Ginsburg, who just passed away. Uh, there's a lot of conversation immediately. I mean, immediately about who should replace her and a rush to, to put somebody else in her seat. And so, um, so I also want to remember as we talk about trending topics, um, the work that, that Ginsburg has done, um, particularly for women's rights, for women's voice um, uh, in the workplace, in medical care. Um, and it is a great loss. And um, I can only um, hope that people will do the right thing, that our leaders will do the right thing, <laughs> um, and take time before putting somebody else in place. Um, with that said, we'll be back with some more research and more conversation about women in healthcare. According to the science, um, it, as we talked about in the first hour, we've looked at um, some of the, the issues and the challenges with um, maternal deaths in, um, among black women. And just to give you a little bit of information here, you saw the statistic during the break that talked about um, a lot of um, black women experience cardiovascular uh, um, challenges and so forth. And so, um, you know, while this, this is certainly the case, um, as Dr. Camberbean pointed out in the first hour, um, our responses as medical professionals, and say our, but you know, the responses of medical professionals, um, the responsibility is to take that all into consideration and to still have um, more immediate responses and responses that believe um, women when they say they're in pain or when they feel you know, a certain way. And as Paris pointed out, um, to also ask questions, learn um, about the situation of the women. And so there, there was so much, so many nuggets in that first hour. If you have a chance to go back and check it out on Sensation Station Network Facebook page, you'll see the live broadcast there. You'll see a replay of it. And you definitely want to check out that first hour. Um, but according to the statistics, so black women in the United States are disproportionately affected by this maternal death phenomenon. And, and what's so interesting is that we are in 
um, the United States, the Western world, the first world country, and so forth. And yet the rates of death of Black women um, is higher. Uh, the rates are higher here than in third world countries. And so it, it's telling um, that there is something happening here that goes beyond poverty, that goes beyond um, access to health care and so forth. Yes, that those things, you know, have some contributing factors to, to certain cases. Um, but there's something much bigger than that going on in, in this country. There's something much more bigger. There's something a lot deeper um, that we have to be willing to delve into. Um, black women are three to, more, three to four more times likely to die in childbirth than um, our white co-counterparts. Um, and this is according to the Centers of Disease Control, um, where 60%, nearly 60% of these deaths are preventable. Um, most of the deaths that I have heard about have been, you know, about bleeding out and not paying attention to um, complications that have may, may have led to bleeding out or once the bleeding out has started, not really catching that or paying attention to that. So again, preventable types of um, concern. Um, as was talked about in the first hour, there have been some speculation about racial bias and um, that, that as Dr. Cantor being pointed out, everybody doesn't necessarily recognize um, that this is happening. It's not necessarily an intentional thing for many people. It's just a, it's a blinder. It's a blind spot. Um, and there are a set of assumptions that we all have that um, if we're not aware of them, if we don't check them, will creep into the work that we do um, with, with people who are different from us. Myself, not having interacted with um, people maybe of some particular culture, um, I might only know what I've heard, um, what I've seen on TV, what I may have read somewhere, but I may not have an intimate understanding of of this person's experience or this person's worldview or their mindset. And this is where it's so important for us to be willing to ask questions, to get, to delve in, but to also examine ourselves. Because there's many ways in which we, if we, if we don't examine ourselves and we don't understand our own limitations, we're gonna be much more likely to explore that. Um, and, and, and that exploration is what helps to improve and perfect the work that we do. So, it's so important um, for us to acknowledge this potential for racial bias. It's not pretty. It's not something that we want to embrace and that we feel good about to, to say that I, in some way, have contributed to um, racial bias. Um, but it's something that's very necessary if we want to remedy this, this, this problem that's going across um, our country. So the work that's being done right now in this area is focusing on on um you know how do we deal with the structural racism that exists in medical care how do we how do we deal with um you know the, those attitudes those beliefs as we mentioned in the first hour that black women don't feel pain in the way that white women do um that black women don't have fertility issues um the more that we can debunk these myths and misconceptions about black women um, the closer we can get to um, resolving some of these issues that we continue to see happening. Um, and with Georgia being um, at the top of the list of um, states in which this is happening. Um, so Monica McLemore, she's an associate professor in the Family Health Care uh, Nursing Department at Uni uh, University of California, San Francisco. 
She says the structural racism that shows up in hospitals and healthcare um, and healthcare institutions has been underexamined and underexamined contributor to how people die. So we look at the biological, you know, concerns as the statistics showed during the break. Um, you know, the heart health of, of black women um, is 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 at a higher risk than others, and and I I think this has a lot to do with the the society and the stressors and the racism that we experience. But with that being said, we have not we've explored some of the biological physical issues, but we have not explored some of the issues that are related to race, the issues that are related to disparities and the institutional um, oppression that that happens. So I'm going to keep speaking about this because it is something that needs to be addressed. I'm gonna keep speaking about this. I'm gonna continue my research on this. I'm gonna to continue to bring people to the table who will talk about this to bring voice to this. With that said, when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit about resilience. Um, we always love to talk about resilience, but there's a different side to resilience that I, I look forward to talking to you about. So we'll be right. All right, welcome back to the by Black women. Um, in the first hour of the show, we had Dr. Cleopatra Camperbean um, and Paris Malusberry, two um, medical professionals who have a who are doing the work in this area. Um, have a pretty um, interesting take with regards to solutions. Um, Paris is very politically involved in terms of getting legislation and policies put into place that um, will benefit. Um, black women in healthcare, um, and Dr. Cleopatra is doing work in um, terms of the actual experience, the maternal experiences, pre um, and post maternal experience of women, and, and just um, creating a, a, the grounds for um, a, an empowering next generation. I mean, so the, the work that they're both doing is um, quite amazing. Um, one of the things that I wanted to point out is that. Um, there are initiatives that are that are out there and that are happening to improve the, the what's happening with black women. So the city of San Francisco has um, launched what's called the Abundant Birth Project. And the intent of this project is to work with women who are underserved and who are financially um, struggling so that they can have the resources that they need to have a healthy pregnancy, childbirth, and to prepare for their um, for the birth of their children. Um, and so what it does is so it, it in what it says here is that it aims to curb the high rates of black women, um, black women's death as it's related to pregnancy and childbirth by giving them monthly stipends worth a thousand dollars. Now, what's interesting about this is, uh, you know, does that make a difference? And, well, you know, it's not economic status, as we were saying in the first that necessarily impacts, um, you know, uh, maternal health. However, there is a factor there. There is there, you know, as Paris had pointed out, um, women who are struggling to get to appointments, um, who may struggle with childcare because in light of COVID right now, um, women are not allowed to bring their children to the appointments. Um, you know, the stipend can help make the difference between whether or not somebody can get to a an appointment to eat healthier, um, to have access to, you know, prenatal. Um, vitamins and so forth. So it's a way to make sure that we're bridging the gap of disparities between um, women who have those resources and women who do not. So this is a pilot program right now. 
Um, and it would reportedly provide um, this thousand dollars to 150 low and middle income black women and Pacific Islander women throughout their pregnancy and until at least six months after they've given birth. Now, this project is the brainchild of Dr. Z Malawa of San Francisco Department of Public Health, and it targets to ease the stress, which is considered as one of the biggest factors negatively impacting pregnant women's health, particularly Black women. Um, so the stress of getting there, you know, getting what you need, the stress of, you know, transportation, the stress of childcare, all of those stresses. This idea is that um, is to alleviate some of those stresses. So. Um, so this is the Abundant Birth Project, and so there are, I, I'm, it's refreshing and it's encouraging to know that there are these measures that are being put in place in order to make sure that, um, that women are getting what they need during pregnancy. So this piece about resilience, and, and I was going to, um, you know, talk about that and, and I'm, you know, and, and kind of really delve into resilience. So a lot of the work that I do is looking at post-traumatic growth. And this idea that after you've overcome or you've gone through a traumatic experience, the idea is that you can grow from the trauma. The trauma um, is, is something that actually helps us to become more resilient. There's a difference between resiliency and trauma. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, and post-traumatic growth. Um, the resiliency is the ability to bounce back. And, and you know, thing happened, you fell, you fell, you can get back up. Post-traumatic growth means that you get back up, but then you build your life to be in a better place than it was before the fall even happened. Um, so it's this idea that you can grow and, um, and, and enhance the quality of your life after and, and sometimes because of the trauma. So with resiliency, the understanding that this is really about being able to bounce back, being able to get back on your feet after something happened. Um, there is what is um, called in this particular study um, by Seneca, a dark side to resilience. So we sometimes can be so um, resilient that we avoid the falling part. <laughs> and and, and it's, it, it might be, it might sound counterintuitive, um, but the, the falling is often the thing that gives us the lesson. It's often the thing that, that helps us to um, process and learn and, and, you know, gives us the strength to even bounce back. So what's being said here is um, difficulty, um, difficulties, this is a quote by Nietzsche, by the way, difficulties strengthen the mind as um, labor does the body. And so that, this is the Nietzsche part, that that does not um, kill us. Uh, or that you know the the things that 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 we are doesn't kill us it makes us stronger right the things that doesn't kill us it makes us stronger so if we resist the lesson that comes with resilience you know we block ourselves so I I see this many times as it pertains to relationships I am going to make sure nobody hurts me so I'm not going to let anybody in so thereby preventing the fall I'm not going to let the fall happen. It's not going to happen. So I'm not going to take any risks. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to do anything that could result in me possibly falling. And what that does is it puts you in a stagnant state. So I have much more to say about that. Um, we're going to go to a break, but I want you to think about that. What does it mean 
to prevent yourself from that fall. We'll talk about that more when we come back. Live Exchange, I'm Dr. Pamela, and um, today we are looking at health disparities uh, with Black women and their and our experiences, really, with um, the healthcare system. Um, one of the things I was talking about before the break was this idea of resilience, and we are, Black women are, are masters of resilience. We, we do resilience well, um, meaning we get knocked down, we get back up. We fall down, we get back up. We get back up, we get back up. But what happens when we become resistance, resistant to the idea of resilience is that we do everything that we can to avoid being knocked down. So we build walls, um, we get a hard shell to the point where nobody can knock us down. Um, and I mean, who wants to be knocked down, right? I mean, that's not it's not unreasonable <laughs> to not want to be knocked down, but there are certainly disadvantages to um, to not experiencing that, and, and because there there are lessons that come with every fall if we take the time to to, to learn those lessons. Um, so, the if we think about it, you know, this whole idea is if we go with the flow, we go with the flow. Um, you know, it meaning we're not going to go against the flow. We're not going to do anything that takes that that's risky. We're not going to do anything that might mean that we're going to look bad. When we do that, we hinder the possibility of growth. We hinder the possibility of um, getting stronger because what resilience does when we experience something and we fall and we have to find the strength to get back up, we are exercising those muscles, um, those mental muscles that we need in order to be strong um, and to rise above. And so the more that we practice those muscles, I know a lot of us don't want to practice those muscles too often. You know, some of us have had way too much practice uh, with the resilience muscle. I know because I've been there, (laughs) but the more that we practice that, the more prepared and equipped we are for um, whatever is next for us on our journey. So whether we are talking about a new level of relationship or if we're talking about an entrepreneurial endeavor, um, whether we're talking about going to school or, uh, you know, some way in which we might need to be a a support for somebody we love, our child, our parent, um, our resilience and our willingness to take risks and to learn from that and to get stronger and to get smarter as a result of that will benefit these endeavors. It will benefit the role that we play in our children's lives. It will benefit our ability to pursue an entrepreneurial uh, endeavor and to stay strong through it um, when those bumps in the roads come, because they're going to come. They're, 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 they're most certainly going to come. Um, so resiliency is a great thing, but when we put in deliberate effort to undercut uh, the fall or to, to, to cushion ourselves or to make sure that, that nothing happens. Um, just know that what, what the results of that uh, can be is uh, a weakening of your own mental immune system, if, if you will. You know, what does this do to you um, in terms of your ability to rise up? Um, and, and I think about a lot of different types of challenges, um, you know, that I faced in my own life and, and how much I, I absolutely didn't enjoy the fall. But I can't really um, 
remember too many instances in which I said, this is something I need to do. This is an endeavor that I need to pursue, but I'm scared it's not going to work. And so I'm not going to do it. And that that's not my nature. I know there's a lot of people who do think this way. Um, and so I want to encourage you, um, if it's something that that you know will take you to the next level, it's something worth pursuing, whether or not that fall is, is imminent. You know, it, it, it's going to happen in one way, shape or another. But if it's something in the in the key here is if it's something that, you know, is going to take you to the next level, the fall is going to be worth it if the fall happens. So don't dictate, I guess, don't let your your decisions be dictated by the fear of failure, the fear of looking, um, you know, lack of failure. So there's this concept called um imposter syndrome. And, and that is that idea that even when I am um, experienced and I've, I've learned this thing and I know this thing, um, but I'm afraid to get in front of an audience because they may find out or they may believe that I'm not really as expert in this area as I think I am. You know, So those are, those are some things to keep in mind. So how does this apply to the, the, our experiences with healthcare? Um, when we are so resilient, and I'm just going to use quote unquote resilient because I don't think that it's necessarily a form of resilience. But when we are so strong that we've built this um, this protector over ourselves, um, we are less likely to do to engage in the fight that we need to engage in to get what it is that we need. So if we expect when we walk into the doctor's office that we're not going to be listened to, that we're not going to be treated with respect, um, then we're going in there in two ways. One of two, it's very defensive. So we are already on guard and we already know that whatever it is that we need isn't going to happen. So we're less likely to ask for it. Um, And the other way that we might walk into a situation like that is completely passive. I'm not going to speak up for myself at all. I'm just going to get this over with. I'm just going to get through it and hope for the best. Um, And so in neither case, um, does a woman have her voice in a in a medical situation that is life and death as the data show? So it's important for us to use our voice. And when we are over resilient, when we have allowed ourselves to block um, ourselves from taking risks, um, then we're less likely to use that voice. We're less likely to tap into the voice that we have and to speak up because what that means is it means taking a risk. So if you are on the other side, you know, we just talked to two medical professionals the first hour. If you're on the other side of that scenario where you're not a medical professional, you're the one receiving the medical care. um, I think the most important takeaway for this show is to be sure that you're using your voice, to be sure that you are not silencing yourself out of fear and that you're not silencing yourself out of self-protection or because they're not going to help me anyway, or because I don't trust these people. You've got to be willing to speak up for yourself, to stand up for yourself, to say what needs to be said. Um, So be careful. You know, it it kind of um, falls into that whole Uh, I can do bad all by myself, you know, ideal mindset. And it's when it comes to our care and when it comes to our health care, we don't need to be doing any of that all by ourselves. We need to demand that we are being treated with respect and dignity. 
Um, we need to insist on it. If we need to change doctors, we need to change doctors. If we need to go up, you know, take this thing up the, the, the chain of command, then we need to do that. And everybody has their own style. It, you know, for some people, it's writing a letter. For other people, it is getting in somebody's face. For other people, it is um, asking questions and, and, and listening. So whatever your method is, what I'm saying is find your voice within that method. Do not allow yourself to be overly hardened by the process, by what's going on in society. And it's really hard not to, because as we see what's going on in the world, the Breonna Taylor, um, you know, results, the way that a lot of people um, responded to, um, um, you know, the death of, um, you know, RGB, all of those things can be quite discouraging from the standpoint of being a woman, but we've got to find ways to, to stand through that. Um, Jamie in the comments has just said the system cannot change if the expectancy is to be mistreated and our job is to just get through it. We do that. We do that in so many different areas of our lives from relationships to our jobs and, and how things are going there to our medical care. And I, our medical care is the way that it's going for us is dependent on our voices. It is dependent on our ability to use our voices and to be educated about what our rights are as a patient. I know that I've mentioned this before, but in my own situation, I fired my doctor three days before my daughter was born. I didn't even know that I can do that, but I had an amazing doula who was with me through my pregnancy and after my child was born, who informed me that if you're not being treated the way that you need to be treated, if you're not being treated with human dignity, you have the right to move on and get another provider. You have the right to speak out against that and to not tolerate that. So that was huge for me. And I think that if we more of us know what our rights are, if more of us understand what we um, can and cannot um, do, what our limitations are and so forth. And, and I want to say sky's the limit. There's, there's not much that we can't do, you know. Um, but as long as we're informed on those things, I think that we have um, much more power to, 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 to do what needs to be done, to take care of ourselves, to save our own lives. Um, because right now, while we're waiting for legislation to pass, while we're waiting for these implicit bias trainings to take place and for it to actually have an impact on medical professionals, and, and quite frankly, these, these trainings need to happen while they're in medical school while they're in college, while they're in, in, in high school. And, and like this needs to permeate every level of education so that we're not waiting until they're in their mid-30s and they're in um, the operating room and the, boom, there comes the biases. So this is something that needs to be permeated in every segment of society. So while we're waiting for that to happen, in the meantime, as Black women, we need to learn how to use our voices. We need to educate ourselves about our rights and we need to make sure that we are treated with dignity by any means necessary. So that's our show today. I just want to thank you all for joining us and engaging in this conversation. 
definitely continue to list comments and and ask questions on the post. I'll make sure that our guests in the first hour, um, you know, get to respond to those. Again, if you miss the first hour of the show, I highly encourage you to go back and listen and watch because the information that they have um, was was valuable and the movements and the initiatives that they're a part of. Um, you definitely want to learn about those and, and possibly get involved. So I, I want to thank you again for joining us on the show for the live exchange where we engage in compelling dialogue every week, every Thursday from 11 to 1. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about women in politics. Um, that I don't, I don't think there could be a more timely, um, uh, this could be a more, there could be a more timely issue than that. So I'll definitely want you to join us for that. Um, join me next week from 11 to 1 Eastern Standard Time. And to, together, we can right the wrongs, speak the truth, rise above, and stand for change. Have an awesome week. <laughs>